0: Hello and welcome back to the Iowa Type Theory Commute. I'm Aaron Stump and we are talking about optimal beta reduction right now in the current chapter of the podcast. And what is optimal beta reduction again? Well beta reduction of course is the process in lambda calculus of reducing uh, lambda terms. And so we have uh, lambda abstractions like lambda x something. And so that is uh, represents a function that's going to take in an input x and then do something with it. And We have applications, so we can take one lambda term and apply it to another, and that's making a function call. And we have variables. Those are the three syntactic forms of lambda pure untyped lambda calculus. And with beta reduction, when we have an application of a lambda abstraction, we're calling a function. And so we need, so we have something like lambda x blah 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 Applied to an argument, and we need to substitute the argument for x in the blah blah blah, and keep computing. So, uh, and now the process of so that's sort of the pen the pen and paper version of this, or kind of the textbook version of of uh, beta reduction, is that you would do a substitution of the argument for the bound variable. But um, doing syntactic substitutions is a really expensive and yucky process. It's expensive because you have to traverse the entire body uh, of the function, looking around for uses of x and replacing them with the argument. It's also um, tricky because yeah, if you're dealing with expressions that have free variables, and this can happen in implementations of type theory or proof assistance or this kind of thing, you're down inside some expression and it, there are some free variables floating around, and maybe you're doing, you're applying a function to some expression that has free variables. Free variables mean just the variable isn't bound by another lambda right there. It's bound somewhere above uh, this expression out in the outside context. So say you had lambda x, yeah, 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 applied to y, where y is just a free variable. Well, you say, oh, that's okay. We'll just substitute y for x. Yes, you can, but you've got to be careful because you don't want um, you have to avoid capture. This is a well-known phenomenon from from the sort of syntactic side of logic and um, and lambda calculus. Is you can't have this y get captured by a lambda y somewhere in the in the body of the function. So there are these de- tricky details to try to avoid all this. And um, optimal beta reduction is a technique for uh, first of all, implementing all this stuff really, uh, you know, more efficiently, which is the same, you know, I, in my mind, I have, I'm have i far from an expert in any of these topics. Sorry <laughs> if you're looking for such a person. But um, I'm a baby expert, I guess. But, uh, you know, if you're looking for, in, in programming languages and compilers, there's just a huge amount of work on compilation of Functional programming languages. So, basically, how do you compile lambda calculus to run efficiently on a you know regular um, hardware? And uh, and there's just lots of ink has been spilled on this topic, and lots of advances were made. And it would seem that we've reached a pretty se- steady state there. And yet, optimal beta reduction, at least in some cases, can annihilate. Those and this is a puzzling and sort of. If you're a programming languages researcher, you should be troubled by this because you, first of all, haven't really heard of this. <laughs> and Second of all, it seems like how could it be better? Um, and uh, the best source I know for this what was very eye opening for me. Is my friend Victor Maya's blog posts on this on Medium. dot com. Uh, sorry, I can't easily refer to these online exactly where you could find them. I mean, well, on the on the air here, but. Uh, he had he did some experiments where he showed certain examples that ran just like trillions of times faster <laughs> uh, with optimal beta reduction than with GHC Haskell. So um, now it's it's certainly not every benchmark program you think of is going to run better this way. And so critics might charge that wow it's just some kind of artificial examples that are running so much better with optimal beta reduction than with standard techniques for compiling lambda calculus, compiling functional programs, and I I have to tell you, I'm still wrestling with and trying to understand these issues and trying to compare how does standard techniques for compiling functional programming languages, how do they compare to the algorithms for optimal beta reduction, and I don't, I haven't been able to think that all through yet personally, and I haven't, I'm not aware of much write-up out there that would talk about that point. So, anyway, but there definitely are at least some kind of esoteric examples where optimal beta direction will just crush regular techniques. And um, one little example you can sort of get a feel for this is say you're have, say you doing some higher-order programming. And of course, if you're programming lambda calculus, you're doing some higher-order programming. In fact, that may be more or less all you're doing if you're programming in pure lambda calculus because there aren't any data. There's just lambda terms. And so say you have some function, some higher-order function that wants to take in f... And apply f a bunch of times, um, and say you call this higher-order function the ones that wants to take in an an f and apply it a bunch of times to some stuff. Say you apply it to a function that's got an embedded computation that needs to happen, an embedded X. So you know it's like lambda x, do some pretty big computation and then return something related to x in that computation, whatever it is. Um, so uh, this kind of embedded computation that needs to happen—that's not going to get—that's not actually going to get triggered or executed until you actually apply f all those times. Each time you apply f in this, this first higher-order function I mentioned, the wants to apply f a bunch of times. Each time you apply f, you're going to have to redo that work. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Um, and uh, you might say, but that's a little bit silly because a good compiler if there's some computation buried in, in a piece of code, it's going to pre-compute that, right? Or it's going to set things up so it's only computed once and the result is stuck there. Yeah, but imagine that that big computation isn't just sitting there in your original source code, but rather sort of emerges from um, from some other computation. So there's like, oh yeah, I've got this big expression, but I can't actually compute it right now at compile time because uh, it depends on some other values. Um, so I'm not saying that that example is totally immune to functional programming optimizations. I mean, who knows if all the bag of tricks were trotted out, maybe that kind of thing could be handled. Um, but I can say, so maybe that's not the definitive example, but that's certainly an example where um, you know embedded computations inside functions, optimal beta reduction is excellent at dealing with that. In fact, it, it will not recompute that a big computation buried inside a function. Um, Even if that computation sort of um, appears as a result of other substitutions that are happening, optimal beta reduction is not going to, it's only going to do it once. And that's because of, as you remember from last time we talked about this idea, using this terminology I got from this um, Asperti uh, Guarini book about uh, virtual redexes. So basically if you have an application to a variable well, right now, that's not dangerous. You Maybe you say, oh, I could, I could copy that or something. I don't have to worry about that. But an application to a variable could later become an application, sorry, an application of a variable, could later become an application of a lambda abstraction, where all of a sudden, now you've got work. You know, when you apply a lambda abstraction, that means you've got to do some work to compute. You've got to substitute that argument for the input. And so if a, a redex application of a lambda could appear later during computation, um, then you know that's you can't be copying the virtual redex, the application of the variable earlier on. You can't copy that. You can't, you better make sure you only do that um, work once when that the virtual redex becomes a real redux uh, so um, anyway, so we've today what I want to talk about for a little bit is something called the abstract algorithm. And this is sort of the basic setup for the um, Lamping's uh, the, sort of the starting point for Lamping's very sophisticated algorithm for optimal beta reduction. And it's it's not hard to understand at all, which is great. Um, it's, it's pretty straightforward, and I think provides the basis for, it's sort of the starting point for all the solutions to this that I'm aware of or I've seen, all the things that are related to lamping's algorithm and optimal beta reduction or techniques, there's a there's a work out there by a guy named Ian Mackey that called Yale, yet another lambda evaluator that's not optimal, but um, it's using some ideas from optimal beta reduction and claims to be efficient, and in fact showed in a paper better results on some examples than some optimal reduc- reducers. Okay, so the abstract algorithm of lamping uh, is an algorithm that. Leaves one really, really critical decision about what to do in a certain case. It leaves it un, um, sort of not determined. So it's um, it's an algorithm that it's sort of like a pre-algorithm. I mean, it's kind of it tells you here's some of the here's some rules you can use, but in one very important case, it doesn't tell you which of two possible rules to use, and that non-determinism just has to be resolved in order to get a sound. Uh, implementation. Uh, I mean, I guess inefficiently. I guess you could just try all the choices, but you wouldn't know what's the right answer. Anyhow, before we get into that, so in lambda algorithm, we have we're going to reduce graphs. You know, representing lambda terms, and the graphs have lambda nodes. They have application nodes. They don't have variables because we're gonna. These are graphs, and whenever a variable was going to be used we're just going to have a wire. So there we're an edge, you know, so these are graphs in the usual computer science sense of nodes connected with edges. And when we have um, where a variable is going to be used, we just have an edge from the Lambda node that introduced the variable over to uh, the, where the variable is used. Now, um, because variables could be used several times in Lambda Calculus, And and in fact, this is actually, even though that seems like such a simple thing, that's a major source of complexity for all kinds of different things that one wants to deal with in lambda calculus. Like uh, confluence, way back somewhere I think I talked about confluence in this podcast. And confluence, the proof of confluence for lambda calculus is greatly complicated by the fact that variables might be used several times. If they could only be used one time, then it would be really simple to prove confluence. So, anyway this same um, issue, you know, we have to deal with the fact that variables could be used several times. Now, if you're going to have variables just be represented by an edge from the Lambda node somewhere, well, you, we're not allowing our edges to kind of just split off into several directions. It can really go from just point A to point B. So if you need your, if your variable is being used several places, you have to have a connection from the Lambda node that introduces that variable. Well, what you do is you have a connection from that Lambda node to duplicator nodes nodes that split, that explicitly split out, you could think of it splitting the signal for that variable to two different places. So say you wanted to have lambda x, x applied to x. Well you start out with the lambda node at the top for that lambda x, there is no x, okay? Because you're just gonna use an edge to represent the information that we represent textually by saying, oh, I've got lambda x, That's, that's just giving me a name to use later in my expression for where that x could go. But when you have a graph, you don't need a name, you just put the edge. Okay, but you can't put the edge to two places. So if you wanna say, actually I should have started with a simple example. If you wanna say lambda xx, you have lambda, and there's an edge from the lambda to where the variable needs to go. And where does the variable need to go? It needs to go right back to the lambda node itself. Because that input is gonna be spat right out as the output. Because lambda xx is the identity function, of course. So the graph for lambda xx is just lambda with a loop on the bottom. Input turns into output. Okay. Now what about lambda x, x applied to x? Well here we have two copies of x. So we have a lambda node at the beginning. And we have an application. So the And the, the body of the lambda is an application. So we've got a lambda node. We've got a it's, its body edge. So each lambda node has two edges. One for the variable and one for the body. So its body edge just goes to an application. The application has two outgoing edges. Sort of underneath it for the function and the argument. Right, so an application has actually three wires connected to it. One is the output wire. That's the one that I just said is connected to this lambda we're starting with. And then the other two are the the wires that take the inputs of the application, which are the function and the argument. So you have lambda, an edge goes down to an application. The application now has two edges coming out and we want them both to be X. Well, the way we do that is we need to split our, our signal or our input wire our variable wire from the lambda node, we need to split that. And so you put a duplicator. So the lambda node, its variable wire goes down to this thing called a duplicator that's usually drawn like a little triangle. And so one point of the triangle is connected to the lambda node. The other two points of the triangle fan out to the different places where the variable is needed. And so here they fan out to the two bottom ports of the application node. Uh, and so that's what Lambda x, x applied X looks like. And you know, <laughs> it's not, sorry for the fact that I'm just describing it. I mean, this is so easy if you just could draw it. And in fact, I could refer you to my optimal beta reduction YouTube channel where I have some, um, videos from two summers ago and one summer ago, and hopefully soon this summer about this. And you'll see some graphs visually, but I hope you can follow what I said. That was not, it's not a, I mean, some of these graphs get completely out of hand. There'd be no hope to describe them. It's barely possible just to draw them out on paper. But, um, but that was a, not a very complicated one. So uh, anyway, so in this, this abstract algorithm of lamping, we have lambda nodes, application nodes, no variable nodes because we just use edges to show where the variable goes. But because variables could be used several places, we have duplicator nodes to split the signal from the um, from the variable uh, wire, from the lambda node. And these duplicators are where all the fun comes in, okay? Because, indeed, as we were talking about before, what we don't want to avoid doing is there are places where we're going to be forced to duplicate a lambda abstraction. As I'm saying this, I'm thinking to myself, man, I really wish I understood better how this relates to programming language techniques like compiling to... Um, closures. right? With a closure you've got a function pointer, and then you've got some data structure representing the values for the free variables in the function. And here we just have graphs, we don't have closures. And we have to, we're speaking about the previous couple episodes, that we're going to have to duplicate lambda abstractions at some point, because this sort of graph rewiring trick, you know, we have this input variable coming off the lambda, when you want to do a beta reduction, you just point that ver- that wire to the argument. It's great. This is awesome. I mean, forget some kind of complicated capture wording substitution. You just change a pointer. You change a couple pointers at most, and that's it. So that's really cool. But to make that sound, we can't be changing pointers destructively multiple times to different arguments in the same lambda abstraction. That's that's going to ruin it, right? So we, we're we going to have to be forced to duplicate our lambda abstraction, and how do we know when we need to duplicate it? Well, these duplicator nodes are pretty much showing us. So if you had this node, this graph I was just talking about, lambda x x applied to x, where that the input wire or the variable wire, let's call it, that comes off the lambda node gets split. That splitting point is where that duplicator is showing us where when we need to copy. Because again, you know, if that lambda abstraction, if a lambda abstraction is used in a couple of places, then that's, you know, we've got a duplicator showing us that. So as I was saying, like lambda x, x applied to x, if you take that and apply it to something, then to some lambda abstraction, I mean, everything is a lambda abstraction, that's not um, a function call, If you or a duplication. So if you apply it to a, a lambda abstraction, now you've basically you've got this splitting of that variable wire. That splitting is now, we've kind of rerouted our wires So that the wire that used to come down and get split... Well, it still comes down and gets split, but it doesn't start with the lambda node anymore. It starts with the argument. Because when you do a beta reduction, you just change this pointer. The variable wire of the lambda just gets pointed to the um, argument. So now we have a duplicator pointing at an argument. And so that's where we're going to have to duplicate an argument. We have to duplicate a lambda abstraction. And and the key thing, as we talked about last episode is that we're going to try to do this duplication lazily. And what that means is we had this, so we have, imagine you've got a duplicator pointing down to a lambda node. So you have this little triangle thing that's the duplicator, and one of its points points down to a lambda. Okay, a lambda node. Now that means, hey guys, we need to duplicate the lambda node because it's this graph, this lambda graph, subgraph, is used in a couple places. We're going to end up doing a couple of beta reductions, and or we may end up doing a couple beta reductions, and so we need to copy. But the key thing, as we were speaking about in Lamping's brilliant observation, is we don't want to copy that whole thing aggressively and eagerly. We want to do it as lazily as possible. Now, how do you do a lazy copy? Well, of a lambda subgraph that starts with a lambda. Well, the first step in the lazy copy is to copy the lambda node. (laughs) It seems pretty obvious. So if you have a duplicator pointing to a lambda node, which then goes off and points to some other stuff, the first thing you need to do is push that duplicator through the lambda. And how you do that is you now make two lambda nodes, okay? And the first lambda node, we had a variable wire and a body wire. Now I've made two lambda nodes, so I now have two variable wires and two body wires. What do I do with them? That's like too many, right? I've just got one place the variable was being used and one body for the lambda, but now I've got a multiplicity of these things, of the wires. Well, if you stop to think about it a minute, it makes pretty good sense what you should do. You've duplicated the lambda node itself, but you haven't done any more duplication. We're trying to do this lazily. So you just did a little bit and pushed this uh, duplicator down through the lambda, but you didn't push it any further. So you now need to stick two duplicators, one for the uh, variable wires and one for the body wires. And those duplicators are sort of sucking in, you could think of it, the the two variable wires, the two body wires, and kind of multiplexing them back down just to one variable and one body wire, which run down into the, what the lambda, the original lambda abstraction had, okay? So we used to have a lambda node and variable going one place and body going another place. Now we have two lambda nodes. The two variable nodes get merged back together with one of these duplicators. It's a triangle. It's got three points. And two of them now take the two variable wires from the two lambda nodes we just created. And then the outgoing point of the triangle just goes down to where the old variable wire used to go. Okay? So you get this little picture and you'll see it if you read any of these papers or try to look at this stuff, you'll see this picture many times. You get a lambda node with a duplicator on top of it, turns into two lambdas with two duplicators below. And those two duplicators are now kind of bounding the scope of the lazy duplication. We're saying that lazy duplication needs to happen now inside the body, and there's we're kind of delimiting it because we have two, you know the lambda has the input, the variable wire and the body wire, and we're kind of saying the lazy duplication is now sort of bounded in here. We uh, we start it, you know, with the the var- the body has a duplication going into it, and the variable has a duplication going into it, and um, and so those two duplicators are we expect, eventually going to meet up together and kind of cancel each other out when we're done copying the whole thing. Um, but anyway, there's more details to talk about that. I didn't get quite as far in the, talking about the abstract algorithm. This is sort of the starting up point of it. I have more to explain, so um, we'll try to do that on another episode. Thank you for listening and hope you're safe.